0: I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how's your cardio? You been working out? You ready to do this? I'm ready. Because we we are coming to people the week after UFC 200, the biggest event ever in the history of the planet of Earth, and we also have breaking news as of, what, late? Monday, late Tuesday, wait, late Sunday night, early Monday morning.
1: So you can... Recently. You can tell Very recently. You can tell
0: how discombobulated I am.
1: You look discombobulated. Just in my
0: inability to even say what day it is. Yeah. The UFC has been sold. That's right. Long story short. Uh, So we will be talking about that today. We will be talking about multiple topics that happened in and around UFC 200. So we will, in fact, be going to the championship rounds.
1: Five fucking rounds
0: so that means that this episode of the co-main event podcast will probably be released in two parts if you're listening to this one first congratulations you have discovered part one uh i assume as we begin part two we will have to do some kind of disclaimer so people don't get incredibly confused
1: yeah because there's no way they could possibly follow if they miss part one
0: this well it's yeah this is like the wire dude you have to listen to every episode of the Comano Maining event podcast in order, or else you're not gonna understand the plot.
1: It's like trying to come in right after the intermission at Lawrence of Arabia. What are you even doing here, dude? Get it together.
0: Yeah, you're not gonna under you're not gonna be able to pick up the thread if you just wander in halfway through. I know what tomorrow is though.
1: Tell everyone what tomorrow is, Chad. Tomorrow,
0: Tuesday, July twelfth, my book, Champion of the World, officially comes out. It hits shelves. It will be available to, for purchase out there on the internet and at various stores wherever fine books are sold. And you can stop talking about it? So if you're one of these people that like has listened to Ben uh, uh, his, his slander job every time I try to talk about the book and so you, you missed the boat on the pre-order, brother, you are in luck. You can go out to the bookstore or online and buy yourself a copy.
1: Please do. Please do it so he'll just stop talking about it. The other thing you can do is
0: come see me in the flesh if you happen to live in Portland, Oregon, where I will be this Thursday, July 14th,
1: reading at Powell's downtown. Or if you happen to live in Missoula, Montana or its surrounding areas, you can come to Shakespeare and Company on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Right.
0: If you live in Montana, you will have plenty of opportunities to see my horrible face in all of its humanity. I'll be at at Shakespeare and Company in, here in Missoula on July 12th, as, as Ben said. I'll be in Bozeman, Montana on July 16th at the County Bookshelf. I'll be in Great Falls, Montana at Cassiopeia Books on July 19th. And then back in Missoula for a second reading here, which I assume will just be wall-to-wall people. Well,
1: once they hear about how good the first one was.
0: That's on uh, the 26th of July at Fact and Fiction. Also, if you happen to live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I'll be there on July 15th at the Literati Bookstore reading with Chris McCormick. So, yeah, a few uh, events out there in the world for for uh, this book.
1: And I would encourage everybody, please do attend and really make the most of the Q&A session at at the end of the reading, because someone needs to hold this man accountable. I'm sure you all have questions and uh, don't don't let them off easy.
0: You know, I get the, the distinct impression that my Q&A session is going to include a lot of questions like, so what's up with Michael Bisping fighting Dan Henderson for the middleweight title?
1: And you'll have an answer. And like, I you will. Don't act like you will, yeah. you will be surprised at that. You'll be eager to talk about it. I'll be ready to go. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is
0: once again brought to you by Gymster. Gymster is the all-in-one health and fitness app for iOS and Android. With over 400 exercises, with instructional gifts, 70 pieces of equipment, and 140 recipes to choose from, Gymster has everything you need to exercise and enjoy a well-balanced diet. You can add equipment to a gym preset and save it for quick and easy access at a later date. Store multiple gym presets, such, such as your local gym, your home garage, or even a preset for those times when you have no workout equipment available to you.
1: You know what I like about what just happened is you said gifs. I with
0: did the, the hard G. The professional wrestling gif. Gif angle that we've been running since the beginning of the co-main event podcast just fell away yeah,
1: gotta keep it the fabe. well the app was created by mark runza who has been a co-main event podcast guy from day one so we encourage you to check out gymster today one cool feature of the app is it allows you to choose between manual selection mode and randomized mode with randomized mode you simply select the amount of exercises you want to perform the muscle group or groups you want to target and then select your gym gymster will do the rest returning a fresh and exciting new routine to keep you coming back for more
0: You can log your workout and keep track of how you're performing in the gym. Also, is your favorite exercise or piece of equipment missing from the app? Contact the Gymster guys, and they will add it within 24 hours. New exercises and recipes are added weekly. So basically, you get a constantly updated app for $2.99. Also, Gymster's latest update for Android, which allows you to organize recipes in order of calories, protein, fats, carbs, price, and or time, is now live. That's Gymster, available at your favorite app store for iOS or Android. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. Five rounds. This week in the co-main event podcast in round number one. Look, we just want to reiterate that there is absolutely no truth to these goofy UFC sale rumors. We've been fully committed to planning and executing UFC 200, making sure that the canvas is a pleasing shade of yellow and any reports to the contrary are pure. Oh, the sale is final. Cool. See ya. And in round number two, how does John Jones get caught up in a quote, potential PEDs violation, damn near ruin UFC 200, and Daniel Cormier is the guy who still ends up getting booed? And in round number three, considering everything that Brock Lesnar has accomplished in MMA, it's kind of remarkable how bad he still seems at MMA. And in round number four, well, congrats to Misha Tate. Oh, uh, strike through. Amanda Noon. Amanda Nunez? Is that what are we doing? Nunes or Nunez?
1: We really should have worked this out beforehand.
0: Let's do Nunez. That seems to be what everybody says it's supposed to be. Okay, but you have you have hung out with her in person. Right? I don't.
1: I did not ask her that.
0: Boy, that's embarrassing. You probably said her name wrong the whole time.
1: I didn't really use her last name when we talked. Oh, I informally. get it. You just called her dinner. Mandy the
0: whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, congrats to Misha Tate, strike through Amanda Nunes, on her big women's bantamweight title win at UFC 200, setting up a bout with former champ Ronda Rousey. Oh, strike through Misha Tate. Oh, through Holly Holm. Sometime in the near future. Come on, Valentina Shevchenko, please do not fuck this up. And in round number five, so, Jose Aldo, you're still really fucking good at this. Congrats, man. All that plus just saying stuff, and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Okay, first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dallas O'Hanrahan, who I assume is a 1980s professional wrestler working a, an Irish gimmick <laughs> down there in the in the Texas territory, working
1: like a Southern Irish gimmick somehow. Yeah.
0: You know, like when they were going to give Hulk Hogan fiery red hair, call him Hulk O'Hogan. I think that could have (laughs) worked. Guys, he writes, Eddie Alvarez is the UFC lightweight champion. This makes me feel good. Not only because Eddie A seems like a genuinely good dude. I remember when he did that interview on the MMA Fortnite with his kids rumbling around playing in the background. That was the shit. But also because he spent so much of his career being awesome in other smaller fight promotions. For some reason, I'm tickled by the fact that a dude who used to beat up fools in Bodog is running around with UFC gold. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong.
1: You're not wrong. Dallas O'Hanrahan, if in fact that is your real name. It is It is really satisfying for those of us who have followed Eddie Alvarez's, Eddie Alvarez's career for a long time. He so does seem like he's been through some shit, man. If there's, you know, there's no such thing as deserve in mixed martial arts. I think we all know that. But if there were, if there were, Chad, then come on. Tell me Eddie Alvarez does not deserve to be a UFC champion.
0: Oh, yeah. I can think of few guys out there that deserve the opportunity to to walk around for a while with the UFC belt around their waist more than Eddie Alvarez cuz you're talking about a dude who has paid some dues, some serious dues. Uh and to see him go out there and kind of whoop up on Rafael Dos Anjos, a guy who had frankly been whooping up on everybody else for a while now in what is probably the UFC's most competitive and cutthroat division was uh eye-opening and 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 pretty awesome. And like I suppose you could have a number of different conversations about it. I think it it speaks to like how good Eddie Alvarez is and also like the surprising nature of the sport, because the few times that we've seen Eddie Alvarez in the octagon before this, like he's had some some awesome fights. But like there were also some dicey moments there when he first came to the UFC. And like a lot of people, we started to wonder, like, oh, is he really going to have the stuff? to compete at this level? And I guess the answer now is emphatically yes.
1: Yeah, well, and I was surprised. Obviously, the fight was over pretty quickly, so we did not get to see a ton of the two of them in the cage together. But it looked like Rafael Dos Anjos had decided, all right, business as usual, that pressure style, where he's just going to back you up against the fence and not give you any space to breathe uh, and keep it on you and try to wear you down that way. And Eddie Alvarez kind of caught him ducking into that right hand a little bit and... That's as soon as he took that stumbling backward step, it was game on. Then the the dog in him came out, as Eddie Alvarez would say. One thing I think we do have to note here is you gotta give RDA his tough guy points because what followed after he took that one wobbling step backwards was just an all out ass whooping, where Eddie Alvarez just charging at him like an angry bull, and Dos Anjos wouldn't go down, just wouldn't. You know, Eddie Alvarez was throwing flying knees at him, uh, hammering him with some t- hard shots, and the the spirit was still very willing for Rafael dos Anjos.
0: Yeah, this this fight, uh, the official time here was three minutes and forty nine seconds into the first round, and it does feel like a good portion of that was. Rafael Dos Anjos dis surviving while Eddie Alvarez was kind of pouring it on. I think you mentioned this before, but I think it's a valid point about Eddie Alvarez. And it is that one of the awesome things about having Eddie Alvarez as lightweight champion is that you have this amazing competitive stack division, and now you have a champ who brings some personality to the top of the heap.
1: Did it or right away bringing some personality to the top of the heap? Shows up at the press conferences and says, you know, I'd really like an easier fight next. Like Conor McGregor. Oh, snap. I see what you did there, Eddie Alvarez. Which I think was a finish your drink rule, depending on which UFC
0: 200 <laughs> fight week drinking game you were playing, right? right?
1: Well, I'm sure if they don't have a something in there for a Conor McGregor call out, then whoever made your drinking game is asleep at the wheel. Because frankly, that that's the main thing you want to watch out there for. And Eddie Alvarez did it right away on damn Thursday night, uh, the first night of the three nights of bloody games. And I think just in general, it seems like not only does it seem like kind of satisfying for the old school hardcore MMA fans to see Eddie Alvarez up there, but to see him right away uh, just got, getting his mind on his money and his money on his mind and picking some some fun shots out there in a division where you could do a whole lot of things and have a whole lot of fun fights. It seems awesome. I guess what I'm wondering is which kind of Eddie Alvarez are we going to see as champ in the cage? Are we going to see the, the brawl crazy Eddie Alvarez or are we going to see the little bit more conservative Eddie Alvarez that we saw in the last two uh, UFC fights before he got the title shot?
0: Yeah, it seems like all things are possible through Eddie Alvarez. I mean, I think Habib Nurmagomedov continues to be a tough matchup for almost everybody in this division. But the upside of Eddie Alvarez is that a fight with Habib sounds awesome between him and Eddie Alvarez, and a lot of that has to do with both of those guys, uh, you know, having a like wide open and kind of reckless style. Obviously, Nurmagomedov uh, goes to the grappling a lot, a lot more, but he still has a very aggressive and and sometimes as i said kind of reckless stand-up style uh and i think a fight between him and eddie alvarez would be dope as would frankly a fight between eddie alvarez and almost any of these people in the 155 pound top 10 like tony ferguson hashtag would watch would watch nate diaz if he ever comes back from the what what are they calling it the 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 170 i guess they've dubbed him a welterweight now on ufc official promotional materials which Nate Diaz was quick to go on his Instagram account and say, don't get it twisted. He's not a welterweight. <laughs> he's a
1: moneyweight for If he the ever moment. comes
0: back from the moneyweight division, hashtag would watch. Donald Cerrone, uh, who's having his own problems right now, but hashtag would watch. A fight between him and, and Eddie Alvarez. We
1: saw that one already, but okay. Yeah. I think the Nurmi fight is the one that, that I'm most interested in. And it's also one of the ones that's probably the, the scariest for Eddie Alvarez.
0: Yeah, you can't. Well, I mean, you can't keep the eagle as long as he's healthy away from the UFC lightweight title fight. Too much longer, I would think. Yeah. Next question this week comes from David Lottery, or David Lotterette, depending on the pronunciation that, that you seek. Joanna Champion, he says, with two exclamation points. Joanna motherfucking champion. How can you not love this girl? She's like if Tim Burton created a UFC fighter and then gave her an adorable accent with assassin's limbs. I don't even love Tim Burton films, but after watching her beat the fuck out of Claudia Brazil, I want to support Tim Burton in some way. God, fuck, she's awesome. <laughs> then she hugged her nemesis and apologized for the reality TV fight. I just want to hang out with her. Can you guys swing that? Can you? Can we do a GoFundMe to get her some protein? I don't know. I'm just spitballing here, but man, she's inspiring. She's so excited about all her free Reebok shit she gets, too. I'm so happy that her dreams came true. Luke Rockhold looks like he thinks he deserves his free shit, but Joanna opens each box of orange Reeboks with awe and wonder, like it's a gift, like someone in America is sponsoring her for 39 cents a day And she's so grateful for her new shoes she can wear to school so the other girls don't make fun of her for being different. I just want to hug her. I think he already said that, didn't he? No, I just want to hang out with her. Now, I just want to hug her. Then I want to pick her up because I bet she's surprisingly light. Joanna Champion. Wow. Exclamation point. So good email there. I'd like to imagine that this
1: email, that he woke up in the middle of the night and grabbed his phone, dashed off this email, went back to sleep, woke up in the morning with a vague sense that something had happened, checked his outgoing messages, and said, oh, God, I did it again.
0: This does feel like it was written amid a fever dream, does it not? (laughs) Just a stream of consciousness. David Lotterette is having a dream where he and Joanna J. Chick are on a Ferris wheel together.
1: (laughs) And suddenly everybody from his fifth grade class is there. It's weird and it's
0: funny, but it's also kind of (laughs) scary.
1: You know what? I think, though, mentioning the reality TV fight and uh, Joanna Champion kind of apologizing for basically being a jerk to Claudia Brazil, which I think is a cool thing that we should start doing now. uh, I think it's a testament to Joanna Champion's natural charisma that she can survive the kind of bad look ultimate fighter stigma because that kind of ruined Matt Hughes, yeah. as you'll recall. And it has ruined a lot of people where if you go on that show and either you are a dick or they edit it to make it look like you're a dick or you're a little of both, uh, I think is more often the case, then a lot of times people don't ever really recover public image wise from that thing. Maybe it helps that ain't nobody watching tough these days, but it seems like even people who aren't watching tough like me and you, we still see enough of the scenes and get enough of the message to hear like... Joanna Champion kind of kind of went after, kind of went full bully mode on Claudia Gedalia, uh, and yet she's so damn likable every time you see her, how can you stay mad at her?
0: Yeah, and, you know, a couple of times, or at least once, I guess, it seemed like things crossed the line from fiery reality television rivalry to kind just being kind of ugly. And this again, as you said, speaks to the fact that you and I had not watched Tough this season and maybe nobody else did either. I didn't know until I think the day of the fight that Joanna Yedjik at one point had told Claudia Godella to go back to the jungle.
1: Yeah. Which that's the worst one there. Is a
0: video that still exists on on uh, the official video from the UFC. You can go watch it. Uh which uh more power to them for leaving that one on the internet, frankly. Uh but You know, if we're going to if we're going to tie into uh, Daniel or uh, uh, Donald Cerrone here in a minute, and if we're going to point out that it's not okay when when Michael Bisping calls people the other F word, uh, I guess we got to give equal time to Joanna Champion by saying, yeah, that's you can't say that. Not cool. You you can't tell the Brazilian fighter to go back to the jungle. That's. uh, that's not going to fly here in 2016. Uh, but luckily, maybe that that comment is going to fly under the radar. It did seem that at least in the aftermath of the fight, uh, Jay Chick wanted to say that that she was just trying to sell the fight and and apologized in the cage to Claudia Godella. And then Claudia Godella jumped on the mic for what seemed like a heartwarming reconciliation, but it was hard to tell
1: because no. it also could have been a further rebuke. It seemed like that initially, but then... She is talking about how what's most important in life is to be humble. Uh, and it sounds like she is doing that to say, this person to my right maybe could learn a lesson about humility. And her comments at the press conference seemed like she was not in a reconciliation mood, really. She did not seem like she had totally accepted that apology. Uh, although she did, I believe, come out to Welcome to the Jungle. Uh, is as, a as walk-out move, movie. Yeah. It is a sweet move. Uh, And honestly, if you ask me from the three days of Bloody Games, what was the single best fight? I got to say it was this one. It was this one. This was a terrific
0: fight and one for the first 10 minutes where it seemed like Claudia Godella was about to take that title because she was all over Joanna Jacek with her grappling skills, uh, bullying her up against the fence, just being sticky. And and the strike happy Joanna Jedliczuk could not get her off her, uh, and it wasn't just like a, a, a complete stall tactic either because Claudia Godella was was peppering her with short punches and and taking her down pretty much at will. Uh, but it's it, I you know at the end of the day I feel like this the one thing that this fight proved to me and I think you said this the week before the fight was that it's going to be awfully hard to beat yet chick in a 25 minute fight if that is your game plan. Yeah. Cuz Claudia Godella couldn't do it. She got tired by the end of the first round. She was already sucking wind and then, you know, by the third when I think the momentum fully shifted in that moment where Joanna Champion uh puts her down and then walks away and kind of waves her up like, "No, no. We're going to we're going to do my thing for a while now because we've had enough of doing yours." Like she didn't she never slowed down. No. Yeah, Jajak did not slow down and that's going to make her tough to beat I think.
1: Well, and that's one of the things that's so much fun to watch about her striking style is not only is it really just sharp and technically sound, she just has so much pop. It's just such like a venomous striking style at all times. And she doesn't lose that as the fight goes on. She still has a lot of sting and a lot of pop in those punches in rounds four and five. And that is why it's going to be tough. Just if you're going to try to go in there and keep dragging her down and wear her down that way, your cardio had better be on point. And Claudia Gadelia basically said afterwards that hers wasn't, for at least in order to do that to yin Yenjicic. And she kind of did the old... I would have won if I hadn't lost thing when talking about it, saying basically she still thinks she's a better fighter, but her cardio just didn't hold out. Well, cardio is part of what makes a good fighter, so it's not like they exist in different categories, like fighting skills and then the ability to keep doing that.
0: Yeah, so I think we got a blueprint laid out there for someone that wants to beat Yelena Chick, but... It also seems like a tall order to go out there and do that over, over five rounds. Uh the other thing I like about Yed J. Chick, and then we will move on. As you know, I have lamented in the past that everybody just too motherfucking friendly at the in the in the women's uh MMA. But uh man, she's nasty. She, she brings is. a nastiness to the table that manifests itself in her fighting skills. Like she fights she's got a a chip on her shoulder, nasty style of striking that you don't all the time see from a hundred and fifteen pound woman that uh is awesome and I think makes her very popular among the hardcore MMA fan, even if that style is not necessarily, as we've discussed in the past, uh, doesn't lend itself to the UFC marketing her to young girls as it did for Ronda Rousey in the same
1: way. I Unless those young girls are sneaker heads. That's true. Then you a champion is, is your perfect champion.
0: Next question this week comes from Royan Lee, who writes, Donald Cerrone throws some off-the-cuff shade at Daniel Cormier, fighting like a quote-unquote fag against Anderson Silva, then apologizes on Instagram using my most... Oops. Using my most hated method of reminding us that he has, quote, friends in the community because it would be all right to hate a group of people if you didn't have friends which represented it, question mark, Mr. Cerrone said with... This with a mic in his hand at an official UFC event while representing the company. It was not while having a few Budweiser's on his boat with his best friends. Not that that would excuse it. Isn't he just apologizing for the backlash? For how long will it be truly tacitly acceptable for UFC stakeholders to think this way? Uh, What will it take for this to be
1: unacceptable? In fairness, it did say he might not have been having a few Budweiser's on his boat, but it seemed like he had had a few Budweiser's just in general. Did you watch this? I did not watch the Q&A. Seemed like it had a couple few soda pops. I would not be surprised to 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 find that
0: out, as Donald Cerrone has made it his his practice to have a couple few soda pops at at post-fight press conferences, and the thing that we know about his lifestyle is that he is going to have a few if it's not his fight week, and maybe even if it is. Like, he will have a few on Wednesday, and then if you need him to fill in on Saturday, he will still be there. He just needs to sweat out the beer weight to
1: make weight. Well... The thing, honestly, his apology on Instagram, uh, I understand why Roy and Lee would say that that is a most hated type of apology, but I, I felt like that was a pretty good apology from him for this situation, because I feel like what happened there is he did the thing that I think if you grow up in America as boys uh, around our age, we've all done it at some point in the past before you realized it wasn't cool, which was you use that word as just kind of a stand-in for like weak and bad. Uh, and, you know, like you just learn growing up on the schoolyard. And everybody, this always happens. We talked about this before we went on uh, the air today, how there's this playbook every single time when something like this happens and a fighter uses a gay slur to uh, demean some other fighter and a bunch of people will jump to his defense on Twitter and be like, no, 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 he didn't mean it like that. He wasn't calling him gay. He was just using it as a synonym for bad, for everything possibly bad. Uh, and they don't seem to realize that, no, we know, we know what's happening and that still sucks. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that he just did it kind of carelessly. I, I think that it's one of those things where... If he knew better, he would do better, and maybe this is the thing that it takes for him to realize, like, okay, I might have grown up doing that, and it's just thoughtless, and I shouldn't do it anymore, and I won't. I will be more careful about it, and I will try to remove it from my vocabulary uh, because it it does hurt people and not cool.
0: Yeah. And I think every, you know, American fans like Donald Cerrone. I like Donald Cerrone, the fighter. I think you like Donald Cerrone, the fighter. I think that American fans like him in the same way British fans like Michael Bisping. And there's going to be a lot of people sticking up for him. And and in the course of this conversation, I don't think that either of us are charging Donald Cerrone with actually hating gay people or like being no. full of hate. He doesn't seem like that kind of dude. If anything, it seems like he's a dude who's out for a good time. And so this is, I think, carelessness on his part. The people People who know Donald Cerrone will tell you he does not have a filter that lots of words that would not be correct for polite society spill out of his mouth pretty much on the regular. But you're right, man, like in 2016, you can't say this stuff anymore. And and as you alluded to it, in our younger days, I bet that you and I both employed that word, as, you know, as an all-purpose slur. But you know, part of getting older and coming to grips with how society is is that you gotta kind of distance yourself from that and move away from those words, regardless of how you mean it. Especially since you, as a as an individual, don't get to decide what words mean. And it doesn't it's not an effective defense to say that he did not mean to slander homosexuals when he said that, because the very point of using the word fag as a pejorative term is its
1: association with homosexuals. Right. It's like it would be like using a Jewish slur to uh, attack someone who you're accusing of being like sheep or something you're being like no I'm not accusing him of I know he's not Jewish I wasn't meaning it like that I was just meaning it as a synonym that is associated with this uh, this slur I mean everybody can kind of recognize that that would not be cool but for some reason uh, in and in, like in a really weird way some people really want to hold on to this one. Uh, and are just not going to let that go. That They they feel like they not only do they have a right to say it, but they have a right to say it without anybody saying anything about it. Also, maybe the weird thing that's being lost in all of this is uh, Donald Cerrone at a fan expo Q&A with CM Punk, and he goes on this rant about Daniel Cormier's fighting style in this thing. That just seems surprising in general, that he would be so... Uh, upset about it, but I'm sure we'll talk more about Daniel Cormier's performance later yeah. on.
0: and I'm uh, led to believe Donald Sony ripped into his teammate as well, right? John Jones. Over A little the bit. PED accusations. Yes. Anyway, last question this week comes to us from, oh boy, from Sauris Grafood. Nailed it. There's no way I'm even in the ballpark of this obviously fake name. Uh, he or she writes, It appears that as of late we have been seeing judges start to favor damage over control a lot more. Does the author of the novel Champion of the World, Out oh, 7 12, 16, and the fiction enthusiast agree with this trend? And do you think that in a fight, the Black Beast's 37 significant strikes should outweigh big countries 4 strikes, 7 takedowns, and 5 guard passes? ouch for you that you just got referred to as the fiction enthusiast.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have a story in this year's best American uh, short stories, but that's okay. You don't need to mention that. Sour Easter food. Because of your...
0: I think you landed in there because of your enthusiasm for the genre. Uh,
1: Let's talk about the judging in this fight, especially because I heard this said a lot afterwards that, hey, it was the damage component uh, that everybody was looking at. um, Which, not in the unified rules, uh, and hard to... Hard to quantify, I think, because it's like saying, all right, he did more damage. Like, How do you know? Because he landed more punches, because they looked like they were really hard punches. And does damage, does Roy Nelson feel damage the same way, you know, Frank Muir feels damage? It's, it's always such a hard thing to say, especially are we talking visible damage or are we just talking about, I think if he would have hit me with that punch, it would have hurt a lot. I don't know. And I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that I think Roy Nelson was robbed there. I think it was a, a tough one to score, but it's a tough one to score because Roy Nelson spent so much more of the fight winning in the sense that he was doing what he wanted to do. And Derek Lewis spent, you know, the first couple minutes and the last couple minutes winning, except that his winning was a real ferocious kind of like visible thing that you couldn't miss. Uh, and so I don't know. It's a tough one to know what to do as judges.
0: Yeah. I I think we're never going to get to the point where there's not going to be an awful lot of subjectivity in deciding who wins and who loses these things, Uh, which is fine, I guess. I mean, I don't know how you take the human element completely out of it. I don't know how you take all of our various uh, biases out of it. Certainly, we all have them. Uh, I'm sure that we will talk about this more as we discuss Daniel Cormier and then Brock Lesnar's performance Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a pretty big wrestling fan and I still think that taking a guy down for 15 or 25 minutes is still a legitimate way to win a mixed martial arts fight. But as the sport continues to evolve, uh, a little bit, I'm coming around to, to the opposite way of thinking as well, though. Like at this point, I think if you are going to win a fight by takedowns and control, the the difference better be staggering between what you are able to do and what your opponent is able is able to do uh because i think if if takedowns and top control and and a little bit of ground and mound defines the fight then yeah you still win but if the other opponent if your opponent is doing work on the feet and landing strikes and scoring points uh i think you have to get into a different a different discussion there but anytime you have a fight that is as close as roy nelson versus derrick lewis i think you're also always going to have opposing
1: viewpoints and i don't necessarily have a problem with the way it it turned out did you no not really uh i was surprised a little bit at some aspects though of roy nelson's strategy that he never really seemed to commit to a submission attempt it seemed like he was his plan was kind of a long term plan. Like, all right, we're going to take this guy down. We're going to wear him down. He's going to get tired, and then I'm going to do something. And it didn't really ever get to that point. I kept, you know, he's getting side control on him. He has plenty of opportunity to take his back, and he doesn't really go for that. Uh, it just seemed like his plan in the first and second round was so dependent on get this guy down and don't let him get up. Uh, and Derek Lewis, even though he's doing a lot of stuff that you would not teach anybody to do if you're trying to teach them how to get up uh, from off their back in an MMA fight, he still was pretty effective at getting up. And Roy Nelson never really seemed like he was even close to starting something that would finish the fight, which surprised me.
0: Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You can go to the website, CoMainEvent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes and mixed martial arts that we miss from Tuesday through Friday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short, it's humorous, it's informative, we think you'll like it. If if you don't, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Then, after weeks of denials and at least one intra-office memo reassuring people that it wasn't going to happen, the UFC done been sold. Uh, Pretty much along the lines, we are led to believe, of earlier reports by Flow Combat's Jeremy Botter, who was the first guy to put pen to paper on this thing, uh, and for his trouble, got some strongly worded emails from the UFC legal department. Uh, but it seems like he was mostly right on about this. The, the UFC is being sold to uh, the William Morris Endeavor Agency, WME, IMG, and, and a fleet of other investors, uh, including uh, a Chinese venture capital firm and some other uh, uh, people, for the staggering amount of f- a little over $4 billion. Billion with a B. Not too shabby of an investment. For the Fertita brothers and Dana White to buy into this thing at $2 million and to cash out at $4 billion, uh, which is still a staggering number and makes you wonder how anyone would ever pay that much for anything, let alone think that they were going to get their money back uh, on the UFC. But it seems that WME IMG has some pretty big time plans for this product, uh, including forging pell-mell into the Chinese market, which I guess could uh advance your your bottom line quite a bit opening thoughts from you and what you expect moving forward in this whole
1: new world well, first of all I hope Jeremy Botter saved those those letters or emails I hope he has them framed uh from the USC legal department just no, you might want
0: to get Larry Epstein to autograph one of yeah, those from it's to be at a fun point.
1: keepsake uh I think you know I, I spent a lot of the morning reading uh a lot of financial world, People's take on this exciting for you. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It it's, was the lead story on NPR's Market it Watch was. this morning. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was coming back from taking my daughter uh, to preschool this morning, and I was listening to it. And it's always interesting, I think, when something like this happens, and we get a chance to see what we look like from the outside. You know, we're we're so in this world, and we're so focused on the minutiae of it that we don't always like it's not even possible for us to conceive like how these people from these other worlds what they see when they look at us. Which it takes something special to happen for them to want to look at us in the first place. It's just like a cage fighting is not a thing they usually think about. And so hearing like the financial people kind of trying to ask each other why is this thing worth four billion dollars? What are, and what does who bought it tell you about what they have planned for it? It's interesting. And one of the things that I think uh, that I saw a couple different places and that I think is a really interesting point when talking about whether it's worth $4 billion is what you're getting here is not just a sports property. And again, this is supposedly the biggest single sports or biggest, biggest single financial transaction in sports history
0: for a franchise, right? That they keep saying, they keep, they keep trying to trying to refer to the UFC as a franchise and compare it to like the New York Yankees or the Dallas Cowboys or Manchester United. Uh, And I always come away feeling like that's kind of bullshit. But uh, we'll okay. see. That's the thing, though. I'm, I'm, willing, like, to, I'm willing to go for it. The, for now.
1: the estimates of like what what are the Dallas Cowboys worth are about four billion dollars, is what people say. The average NFL team is uh, said to be worth about two billion dollars. Except that if you buy the UFC, you're not just buying one of 32 teams. You are you have basically bought an entire sport. Right. And you've bought like a sport that is minimally regulated and that you can kind of do whatever with. You're buying like along with it. Hundreds of fighter contracts, these guys on whom you own like their likeness rights in perpetuity. You're, you can do kind of whatever you want with it. It's not like buying an NFL team and the, the league tells you, okay, here are the rules. Here are the ways you can make money. Here are the ways you can't make money. And everybody, you, we have existing agreements with players associations. So you got to abide by those. It's, you kind of come in there and you can, you can shape this world however you want in a lot of crazy ways and we've seen that the you know the US, the previous owners have done that to their advantage especially recently so i think that that's one of the things that probably makes it seem like a good value to somebody like that especially you know the WME IMG having a lot of ties to businesses in China that can actually get in there and make it past Macau uh, when it comes to holding shows in China and they probably see like all right we we have the ability to turn this thing into something bigger Uh, And, yeah, it probably does seem long-term like a really good investment to them.
0: I don't know if we have time today to get into a full discussion of the complicated legacy left by Zufa LLC. Uh, and Lorenzo and Frank Fertitta, as they step away a bit from this business, obviously Dana White is going to stay on as the UFC president and we assume will continue to be the media front man for the organization, at least uh, in the short term. Someday we are going to have to have that conversation, maybe during an hashtag ain't shit going on week, uh, because it is complicated and it is uh uh, extensive, the legacy of that company in mixed martial arts. Uh, for now, though, I don't think that people expect a lot of wholesale changes in front of the camera as these new owners take over, at least in the short term. Although I thought that uh, my Bleacher Report colleague, Mike Chiappetta, made a, an interesting point uh, during a, a, a discussion post that we did earlier on this topic. And that was, he basically said, you know, WME-IMG is a, is a creative company. It's known to... To be a creative enterprise and when was the last time you ever heard of a bunch of creative creative minded people making an making an enormous purchase like this and not coming in with a million new ideas that they wanted to implement so i think it's possible that we do see some pretty big changes in the future moving forward with the ufc but at this point uh we just don't know what they are or how it's going to be uh uh you know communicating with this company or working in this industry moving forward I think that the loss of Lorenzo Fertitta is an interesting thing here because while he, you know, I believe there's some evidence to suggest he's a rather ruthless businessman behind the scenes, in front of the cameras, especially as it pertained to the UFC, he has always come across as the level-headed voice of reason in this sport. And perhaps as, you know, a friend since high school and later the boss of Dana White, seemed like he was one of the only people who could... Talk sense to the man when when the bombastic UFC president uh, spins himself into a public tizzy, which which happens frequently. I wonder what it's going to be like now without Lorenzo Fertitta around, uh, especially if uh, the head of WME IMG, Ari Emanuel, who is himself known as a firebrand kind of guy, is going to be in charge uh will things be better and and or at least more corporately minded will will dana white have a shorter leash or will dana white have a longer leash because he's going to be the only person uh, in a position of power at this company that, that knows what's going on in mixed martial arts and, and the WME IMG people will just rule from afar. I think that's going to be one of the interesting questions that we're going to get answered, uh, probably by demonstration yes. uh, in the it near future. probably won't future. take
1: too long before you get an answer to that by demonstration, uh, knowing the way these things go. It will, there's a lot of doubt still about exactly what's going to happen here. Uh, the thing that I always wonder and that I think that we've talked about before is how is this going to affect the fighters? You know, what's what are their lives going to be like uh, under this? And I don't know. That, to me, is the big question that I'm waiting for an answer to because it's one of those things where you know, of course, what the UFC is going to say is, hey, nothing's going to change, business as usual, which isn't the totally encouraging if you're one of the fighters like that's not exactly what you'd want to hear because i'm sure a lot of the fighters especially when they see oh so this thing was worth four billion dollars somebody paid four billion dollars for this thing and a lot of us are not really doing that well
0: yeah especially i would think if you are a retired fighter who has spent your career during the time that this thing went from being worth two million dollars to four billion dollars uh basically on your back on your blood sweat and tears i mean Maybe he's a a, a a divisive example, but if you're Tito Ortiz and you kept this thing alive, basically during the darkest days of the UFC uh, when John McCain was trying to ban it and it was booted off pay per view, and and as Tito Ortiz, you were the only star, basically as the light heavyweight champion out there main eventing pay per views, you might wonder where is my cut of this four billion dollars that the guys in charge just made? Uh and and you know, just as a reminder, I guess we would say. In late 2015, when, when John Nash at Bloody Elbow uh, did a, wrote a piece about what he was able to find out about the, the inner workings and and financial setup of the UFC, he estimated that fighters were getting paid between 13 and, and roughly 17% of total revenue between 2011 and 2015, which is extremely low, especially by modern standards. And even if it's wrong... Man, you can double those numbers, and it is still low by modern standards. So if you're one of these fighters who now looks around and sees the Fortita brothers cashing out for $4 billion and Dana White making $360 million or whatever he clears out of this thing, I got to think
1: you got questions. Well, but don't you think that uh, the reason— that one of the reasons that this thing was worth four billion dollars to somebody is because of the same setups that allowed it. So that guys oh, absolutely. like Tito Ortiz, who helped build it, are not getting the cut, and are you know they still can replay your fights over and over again, and you, and it do, you don't see any of that. Uh, like and the fact that it's set up to where pay could be from thirteen to seventeen percent. Like that's one of the many like. Things that probably adds value to the person buying this. Yeah, thing. I, and if we, you can't think that's something that they're thinking like, oh, hey, that makes this thing valuable. Let's go in there and change that. Right. We, we talked about that. we
0: talked about that in the weeks leading up to this thing that it's impossible to believe that anybody pays four billion dollars for a sports franchise and then is like, okay, so how do we, how do we cut into our end here? How do we, how do we reduce <laughs> yes. our profits after we've, we've, uh, we've paid this much money by, by paying the athletes more. Cool. Let's get right on that. It'll be shocking to me if that happens. But another kind of layer of irony about this whole thing is, and one of the things that makes me wonder, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. But WME IMG is a, a, a talent agency, right. like their specialty is that they are supposed to go out and get their clients as much money as possible?
1: And WME represents Ronda Rousey in her uh, entertainment side of things,
0: which seems like it's going to be a conflict of interest that is going to have to be worked out. I-, I think that that it's illegal, right, in some states to to uh, be both a promoter and a manager.
1: It would be if the Ali Act uh, right. expanded to right, right. to cover MMA.
0: So, yeah, we're going to have to see how this thing goes. I think it's going to be interesting that that uh, an organization that specializes in representing its clients against big companies for entertainment job purposes is now owns the UFC and is going to be negotiating with fighters about how much they're going to get paid for sports and entertainment job purposes. Uh, but you got to think uh, WME IMG knows their way around a negotiation because that's pretty much what they do. So we'll see how it goes. It's going to be interesting moving forward. This is going to be a dominant topic probably for the rest of this year, maybe into 2017. We'll have plenty of time to talk about it. Uh, but this sale did go down, and at this point everyone is just kind of wondering how it's going to affect all things moving forward, especially since Zufa LLC had such a major role in defining almost everything about the culture of mixed martial arts yeah. in America. so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Well
1: can we say before we move on to another topic can we just take note of how p- perfectly zufa-ish this thing went down this sale oh, yeah. went down oh, the- like they just they went out the way they lived. Uh, as, as Zufa, because, you know, when reports of the sale start popping up and they're shooting them down and, you know, vaguely threatening legal action, the guy who's doing the reporting sending a memo to their own employees saying, absolutely not, don't even worry about it, telling everybody they can, it's completely false, these people are hurting our business with their lies, their vicious lies, Chad. Oh, wait, no, we, we did totally sell it.
0: Turns out they were pretty much exactly right.
1: Kind of reminiscent
0: of the uh, early discussions about whether or not Anderson Silva was going to fill in to fight Daniel Cormier at UFC 200, where you saw some some denials, some some text messages, and then oh wait, no, we're just going to go ahead and feed this thing to TMZ. Right? Maybe because we have a financial relationship with them. Hashtag allegedly. Uh, so yeah, a lot. Of, there were a lot of uh, very uh, pointed reminders of how business gets done. Over there uh, this week. Anyway, speaking of Daniel Cormier, Anderson Silva, and John Jones, we're going to talk about that right now in round number two.
1: Chad, just to screw over last week's CME, the very next day, after we recorded on a Tuesday, like everybody is always telling us we should do, and then Wednesday, John Jones hears that he has a potential anti-doping violation from USADA, Uh, the whole thing falls apart, Jones Cormier is off, Jones calls a special press conference with his manager and crisis management crew. They don't manage a crisis super well, it turns out, in this press conference. Uh, then the UFC scrambles to find a replacement for Daniel Cormier, and what do you know? It's former UFC middleweight champion Anderson Silva. Just so we could say that UFC 200 had enough of the totally weird and fucked up stuff that we've come to expect from big-time MMA in the year 2016. Felt felt pretty perfect in that sense, also... Has it sunk in for you yet that we could be looking at two years without John Jones?
0: Yeah, the really unfortunate part about this happening for John Jones at this moment is that he had he was just riding in on this wave of public acceptance after coming back off a suspension from when the UFC stripped him of his title in the wake of that hit and run accident in Albuquerque last April. It seemed like that whole process of taking his title away and then giving it, I mean, not giving it to, but like Daniel Cormier winning the vacant title with his victory over Anthony Johnson. Uh, it seemed like that public opinion at least a little bit had swung back in John Jones's favor because of all of that process, you know, and that John Jones was kind of like enjoying a swell of popularity. And then this happens, which I guess is totally both UFC and totally John Jones for something like this to happen. It is. Kind of staggering to think that John Jones could be out now for two years. And the big time loser in that situation, aside from Jones himself, would be Daniel Cormier, right? Because Daniel Cormier is going to be damn near 40 years old by the time John Jones would come back off that lengthy suspension. And without John Jones, it leaves Daniel Cormier as the champion of a totally crumbling division with
1: less than 40 dudes in it. I think what you said when we were sitting around your house watching UFC 200, and I think that after the fight was over, you were looking at a headline about Daniel Cormier saying that he was awaiting the winner of uh, Glover Teixeira and Anthony Johnson, and you shook your head ruefully, I would say, and you just mumbled, man, just shut it down. Just shut it down.
0: It does seem like without Jon Jones, the light heavyweight division is almost worthless. And I I don't mean that as, a, as an insult to any of the fighters there. Clearly, Daniel Cormier, first and foremost, is a, a terrific fighter and a wonderful champion for the UFC. And on top of all that, everybody says one of the best dudes in the entire sport. But only 250,000 people bought his title defense against Alexander Gustafson. Uh, last October. And that was a hell that of a was, fight. Turned out to be a hell of a fight. Without John Jones there to to drive pay per view sales and and provide a uh you know a focal point to the division that you either love or hate, it just seems like it's going to be tough to sell fights, especially if the best you can do is the winner of Glover Tashira versus Anthony Johnson against Daniel Cormier uh which is a huge shame man especially when you think about where this division used to be that it was is it was historically the glamour division of the UFC and the division of Tito Ortiz the division of Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture uh and then later the division of John Jones who might have just squandered his his chance to be the greatest mixed martial arts fighter of all time I don't know we'll have to see how it goes well, but... okay let's talk
1: about how, seeing how it goes here with this thing with John Jones because we still don't know exactly what's going to happen there the the press conference that they held seemed odd to me. It seemed like I, I'm i not sure what they thought that they were going to accomplish there uh, because you come out there and it's John Jones with Malky Kawa, his manager, and their their crisis management PR person. And the first words out of Jones's mouth are an apology, basically. And then Malky has to step in and say, by the way, we're denying that he knowingly did anything. Uh and that's a, that already puts you in a tough spot. It does not seem like you have a unified message as you're trying to get out there. Uh, they won't say yet what it is the, that he tested positive for. Rumors are, you know, some kind of estrogen blocker stuff. Uh, they did say they think it could be a potential supplement issue. Um, the problem I think with making that argument, uh, because we've seen it kind of work for people in the past, you know, or you are Romero, where you say, hey, I didn't do anything on purpose. I was taking this supplement. It had a banned substance in it that wasn't listed in the ingredients. And the USADA, to their credit, I think, uh, you know, you make that argument to an athletic commission and they say, tough shit. You're responsible for what's in your body. The penalty is the penalty. But USADA is like, all right, tell us what supplement it is. We'll go find a couple. We'll, We'll test it ourselves. And they did that and said, you know what? You're right. Uh, that that supplement did have this contamination so we're not going to let you off with nothing but they gave you all Romero down from 2 years to 6 months which seems very fair to me uh, but the problem is since that that has been laid out as we know what steps happen in that thing if you're going to claim supplement contamination and so everybody's going to say all right here's the point where you tell everybody what the supplement was like, why aren't you doing that? Where, where's the next step in this process that we've already begun to familiarize ourselves with? Um, so I think right now people are kind of still waiting to see exactly where John Jones camp goes with it. And if you don't go somewhere like that with it soon, then it starts to seem like two years is inevitable.
0: Yeah. And. You know, when you see John Jones up there on the stage crying and uh, appearing quite genuine and being so overwrought with emotion that he has to leave the stage and come back, you want to believe the guy, frankly, or at least I do. I feel bad for him, and I kind of want to believe him, but it in this modern sporting culture, it is so hard to buy any excuse for a potential PEDs violation that you almost feel like a sucker. If you're yeah. like, oh, okay, well, it was probably just tainted supplements. Uh, as, and, you know, it, additionally to that, like USADA has a, uh, you know, has rules in place where if you want to take weirdo supplements, you can ask them, you can send them your supplements and they'll test them and they'll say, this is okay. Or they'll say this, you know, this one's going to get you in trouble. And so, uh, you know, I, for an athlete at the highest level of his professional sport, you've got to think you would take a keener interest in what you're putting into your body, uh, than than this kind of laissez-faire attitude about it. And maybe John Jones did get a hold of some tainted supplements. But I'll tell you one thing: this is the last time that this excuse is ever going to fly. Because after this, I'm going to be like, man. You should have. You just should have known. For anybody, if when John Jones tested positive as a as a result result of a tainted supplement, that should have been a wake up call to every other single person in this sport. Especially since John Jones and UL Romero have the same manager.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's interesting too. But I think for me, what I would have wanted to see in order to really buy the tainted supplement argument right out of the gate like that, is I would have wanted to see a little bit more like. I don't know if outrage is the right word from John Jones but a little bit more vehemence because if, if or even like a clear message at the crisis yeah. the crisisly managed exactly crisis pay-per-view because, press conference because <laughs> if it's me and I know that I didn't cheat I know that I did not take anything to my knowledge that I wasn't supposed to take and I'm sure of that and I I get caught anyway and they say this stuff was in your system I would feel really pissed off about the whole thing. And I would be like, I'd feel like I'd be kind of adamant about telling everybody, look, I know how this looks, but I'm telling you guys, I didn't do shit. We're going to go through all this stuff. We're going to test everything that's in my house. We're going to be, you know, testing the tap water, uh, checking out what's in the toothpaste. We're going to get to the bottom of this because I'm telling you, I did not cheat. This is bullshit. And you did not get that sense from him. You got the sense of like, I'm really sorry to everybody and I, I don't know what to say.
0: Right. And I mean, if you can say anything in defense of John Jones, it's probably that 12 hours had passed from the time that he first found out that he had been flagged to the time that they had a press conference. So maybe that outrage had faded a little bit into numbness. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. Like you need to have a clear message at that press conference, especially if you're paying money to crisis management professionals to come in and manage your crisis. And then you go out there and it's like you don't even know what the message is supposed to be. And I would say, on top of all that, another thing that hurts the credibility of of the John Jones denial slash apology press conference is John Jones because we've had so many, you know, personal indiscretions from this guy of one type or another throughout his career in mixed martial arts that even though you want to believe him and he's up there crying on the stage, you also got to think to yourself, man, how many times in John Jones's life has he encountered a situation where he needed to get the waterworks going and, and profess to whoever it may be on whatever topic that A, he is innocent, B, he is sorry, and C, that this will never happen again. Because <laughs> yes. we, as mixed martial arts fans, have heard it from him before. And you got to think that people in his personal life have heard it from him before. And so uh, it's kind of a boy-who-cried-wolf situation at this point, where you just don't know what to believe from the guy. Should we talk a little bit about Anderson Silva and Daniel Cormier's fight? Yeah, that was an awesome fight, man. That was, woo! <laughs> be on highlight tapes for
1: years to come. The problem, I think, for Daniel Cormier is he was put into an impossible situation here. Anderson Silva comes in, up a weight class on two days' notice. If you don't knock him out immediately, you don't just absolutely trounce him. Even if you do absolutely trounce him, people are just going to say, well, hey, come on, man. Like, he's old, he's a middleweight, and he didn't prepare. And he just had his gallbladder out. Man, what's gallbladderless in there, Daniel Cormier? Like, of course you beat him. Uh, well, yeah,
0: it's one no-win situation for Daniel Cormier after another, pretty much. Like, yeah. Which makes you feel bad for that dude, for sure. And... I understand the, the reaction of the live crowd and I understand criticism about Daniel Cormier going out there and playing it safe. But at the same time, that is still Anderson Silva out there on two days notice. And you can see during the fleeting times during this fight when Anderson Silva was able to stay on his feet and control the distance a little bit, he's, he's diminished. The man is 41 years old, but he can still get loose out there. Like his, he's still Anderson Silva when he's throwing those jump kicks and flying knees and punches. He can still hurt you as we saw late in this fight when he hurt. Daniel Cormier with a body kick so if you're the light heavyweight champion and you got to go out there and fight the greatest middleweight of all time and even though this man is reduced he's still dangerous shit I don't blame Daniel Cormier at all for taking this thing to the ground for 15 straight minutes
1: well yeah and it seemed like a lot of his approach there was hey don't fuck this up and I said as much at the post by press conference (laughs) right he was like it would
0: have been a disaster if I would have lost this
1: yeah uh so I can understand that and I think that People, I understand uh, if you bought tickets to UFC 200 and you probably played, paid a pretty penny for it and you got there, you're thinking you're going to see Daniel Cormier, John Jones, and instead you see Daniel Cormier playing it pretty safe against Anderson Silva. I can understand you being a little bit frustrated, uh, but also I think that you should temper that frustration with understanding of exactly what the situation is and that it's not the man's fault in the first place that it ended up this way. Uh, but... It is interesting to me that uh, Daniel Cormier goes out there, takes Anderson Silva down, and stays on top of him, hitting him with little short shots enough to not get stood up, and it's boo city. Brock Lesnar does it to Mark Hunt, and you know we're just amazed at what this man is able to accomplish.
0: Yeah, well, we're definitely going to talk about uh, Brock Lesnar a little bit later in the show. Uh, do you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me Now? And then we'll, we'll, Let's do, we'll do the rest of these rounds. Uh, do we have a, are we doing a a joint? Are you fucking kidding me this week? Yes, by all means. Because, I mean, there were a lot of, are you fucking kidding me worthy stuff to to choose from this week, but none, I think more, uh, than Khalil Roundtree telling his mom to shut up during, shut up during the tough 23 light heavyweight (sighs) final that, that Khalil Roundtree had ended up losing to Andrew Sanchez, uh, by decision. But, uh, I mean, it's an, are you fucking kidding me moment, but also you understand, right? Like you know like everyone who has moms everyone who has a mom out there, we all understand in this situation how you might want to be like mom shut up, right? <laughs> mom Shut up, I'm on TV you Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Anyway, that's gonna do it for what round was this? Round number two, round I already number two. I already lost count. Ah, we'll be it's right not back. Going well. With round number three.
1: It's less likely than James Tony taking someone down. More improbable than the UFC coming back to your town. But Tad, Tad and Ben are the co
0: main event. Mixed martial arts podcast. Hey, Dummy. You reached the end of part one of the co-main event podcast. You're going to want to kick it over and listen to part two to hear the rest of our brilliant thoughts about UFC 200.